Welcome to Dream, Declare, Deliver with your host, Chris Garrell. Join us each week as we explore how to live a life by design by applying the tools and techniques of emotional intelligence and personal transformation. Here's Chris. Hello and welcome to Dream, Declare, Deliver. I'm your host, Chris Garrell, and I'm welcoming you to a new segment of the program. The first 13 sessions that we had were on the book Typhoon Honey, The Only Way Out is Through, and my co-author, Candace Sogren, and I were exploring different tips and techniques that you can use to build a, a life worth living, a, a life by design, as we called it. And I'm turning the corner now to shift to a new book that I just released uh, called Learning to Feel. And I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the distinctions that are used in the book and then go into exploring uh, what we can access through our emotional states and, and through what information is available to us in, in emotions. So to start off, I'd, I'd like to make a couple distinctions, uh, and, and that is between thoughts and, and emotions. Um, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I don't feel like doing that. Uh, I, you know, I don't feel like going to the gym today. I don't feel like getting up. I don't feel, you know, whatever that is. That is not an emotion. That's actually a thought. Um, and in fact, many of our emotions, most of our emotions are preceded by thoughts, our brain makes manufactures the emotion based on our beliefs and our thought systems. And um, it's been proven recently through uh, brain science research, um, some of which is being done right here in Boston, um, that, that the entire system, the whole brain lights up when we're having an emotional experience. And, and what that means is that we're plugging into, we're getting information from all parts of our body, um, literally our brain stem and our central nervous system, our heart, um, as well as all segment, segments of the brain. So we used to believe, for example, that emotions were seated only in the amygdala, in the, um, in what's called the, the, uh, cerebellum, um, and, um, you know, that second part of the brain and that, that, that was where emotions lived, um, exclusively. Uh, what we're finding is that while there is functioning there and there is stuff that's triggered there, but it's also tapping into all of the memories and thoughts that we have that create meaning in our life. So, for example, when we experience something and have an emotional reaction from it, like, you know, for example, we see a, a car crash and we have a flash of panic, um, we, you know, what's happening is the thing that our brain is always doing, which is it experiences something, it sees something, perceives something, brings it in through the senses, through our five senses and, you know, maybe some others, and and then it check that out against the memory banks that it has about what those experiences might be, what looked like that, felt like that, sound like that before, and then projects that into the next moment. It projects it into the next moment or the future moments or way out in the future. Oh, my God, this is going to be like that forever. Um, and it all does that in in light speed, so fast that we don't even perceive it. So it looks like and it feels like we see something or experience something and um, end up, you know, having an emotion right about that. 
Um, in fact, what's happening is that that referring system, the brain sees, refers to its back and then projects, um, is always going on. The brain is busy all day long, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year from before our birth until the flat line when we die. Um, and our brain is always doing that. It's monitoring all of our autonomic systems, our breathing, our heart rate, um, our stomach indigestion or digestion, our, our intestines, our leg, you know, our, the tension in our, our, our muscles. It monitors all that imperceptibly. You know, we're not aware of that. If we were aware of all the things the brain were thinking of and analyzing all the time, we'd probably go wacky. Um, but, but what, what that does is that that's all happening at a pre-conscious or an unconscious level. Um, and then at the same time, it's, it's making a projection. Um, Lisa, uh, Feldman Barrett, a researcher at, um, at Northeastern University as a brain scientist, um, uses the example of, of how that, you know, comparison and projection works. Imagine yourself walking on one of those moving uh, conveyor belts at the at the airport. Now, your brain knows that you're walking on a moving floor and that you're moving at a speed faster than the people um, that are beside you who are walking on the on the regular floor. Um, and so it knows that it projects into the future that when you come to the end of the moving sidewalk, that you'll have to adjust your pace because you're going a little faster. However... <laughs> We always make an error in that judgment in that um, I know I do when I get to the end, even though I know I'm going to have to quicken my pace to to not fall over. I still stumble a little bit, you know, with that transition from the moving sidewalk to to the still sidewalk. Um, and, and so what's happening is that we have these errors of judgment, even though that's the job of the brain and it's doing it all the time. So, so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, getting into the deep details right away, but the point is that our brain's job is to analyze things and project into it. And that's the source of our emotions. When we don't have access to our emotions, the whole reason why I wrote Learning to Feel was to understand the connection between those thoughts and beliefs and the projected emotions that result from them So that, and, and see how they were acting in my life and causing me to act certain ways that I wasn't really fully aware of. You know, I just work on automatic pilot. Many of us, and you may be like me, run at such a high speed that we're not really aware of what's going on in our minds. And we just, you know, we, we just move through one thing to the next thing. And we often are in what I call reaction mode. We don't, we're not in an action. I always think of myself as an action oriented person. You may think of yourself that way too. But in truth, we're always in reaction. 99.9%, I don't know, that's not a real number, but most of the time, what we're doing is not an action, but a reaction, a reaction to the, the cues that are around us. If you're relating to what I'm saying and smiling and nodding, you're having a reaction to what my words are and what I'm saying. You know, you go outside. It's a beautiful spring day here in New England today. Um, and I'm dying to get outside. And as soon as I go outside, my reaction is going to be sunny skies, 80 degrees in April. How blessed we are. How wonderful that is. 
Um, and, and, you know, so I'm reacting to the, to the nature. I'm reacting to the weather on gloomy days. Don't you wake up sometimes and you say, Oh, I just want to roll over and turn, you know, go back to sleep or something. Cause it's gray and, 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 and cold and gloomy outside. So, so we have to understand that because we're always in reaction, we have to understand what we are in reaction to. Our emotions, therefore, are huge signs, huge billboards that say, this is what's going on here. This is what you think. This is what you believe. This is what's going on. So if we pay attention to our emotions, we have much better chance of understanding what our antecedent beliefs and thoughts are. And if we do that, then we can change our thoughts. The lovely thing about being Homo sapiens sapiens, which is now our designations, we're no longer called hominids, we're no longer called Homo sapiens, we're called Homo sapiens sapiens. We can think about thinking. We actually do that. So what we can do when we access our emotions is get access to the antecedent belief systems and the thought systems, and then we can challenge those. I'll give you a real example of, of that that I used in the book. Um, I am a, I'm a large guy. I'm six, three and two and a quarter. Um, and I've always been pretty big, but I wasn't when I was a little kid and way back in, I don't know, 1953 or so, somewhere in that territory, I was four years old. We were living on an army barracks in Germany as part of the army of occupation post-World War II. And, um, I was about four years old, as I said, and, and there weren't, there weren't playgrounds there. The kids all just played out on the stoop outside the building um, on the steps or on the sidewalks or things like that. One particular day, I was out there playing with a truck or something that was really cool. Um, and the other kids wanted me to share it, and I didn't want to share. Um, and they started calling me stingy, and they started calling me names and stuff like that. And I got mad. I got really really mad um as mad as a four-year-old little boy could get and and so as you as you looked out down the steps i was up on the the stoop um and there are three steps down to the sidewalks where the other children were on the sides were these brick um kind of a, a little baluster about this high um uh, you know going down the side made out of bricks on the side on the right there was a loose brick a half brick that was loose in my rage i bent over, picked up that brick, and I threw it at the, at the other kids. And it hit one of the boys on the side of the head, and it started bleeding profusely. I got scared. I ran inside, hit under the table, and, and cried. Um, you know, I, I just was, was scared to death, period, in a sentence. That's an experience that's in my brain. Uh, what I learned out of that was I'm a mean person. I'm a violent person. I can cause harm to other people. And that lived inside of me for a long, 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 long time until somewhere, I don't know, maybe about 35 years ago, um, I was in a workshop. And in the workshop, we were talking about how we have these belief systems that are inside of us. And if we want to take control of our lives, we really need to know what those belief systems are. We need to challenge them. Are they real? So we went through this exercise to, you know, unearth what are some of those those fundamental life-changing beliefs that you adopted, you know, in your childhood. And I told the story of the of the brick. So the the instructor said, tonight I want you to go home and check it out. 
you know, see if you can find out, did that really happen or did it not happen or what's up with that? So uh, after the workshop was over, I went home and I called my sister who was two years older than me. And, you know, when we were over in Germany, she was like my Lord and protector. She was with me all the time. So I said, Sue, you know, told the story about the break. Do you remember this, this incident? And she said, well, I remember when you went inside and you were under the table hiding and crying. I don't remember anything about a, a brick or anything like that. Why don't you ask mom? So my mom was still alive at that time. And, and so I called her up and I told her the same story, asked her the same question. And she said, Chris, you got to understand this. We lived in an army barracks. All the mothers were hardwired together. If anything like that had even closely resembling that had happened, I would have known immediately that never happened. That never happened. I have such a visual memory in my head of that happening. But what really happened then was that in my anger as a four-year-old little boy, I dreamed or I thought that I would pick up a brick. I couldn't, couldn't possibly have the, the acuity or the strength to throw a brick and actually hit somebody. Um, I never did that. But I believed I did. I wanted to do that. And that lived as a memory in my head. And that was the foundation of a lot of the ways that I reacted to people, a lot of the ways that I engaged in sports, um, and, you know, and was afraid to, to really hit hard in, in football and wrestling and, and, uh, stuff like that. You know, like it, it, it lived as a construct inside of me. And and so what I mean by that story is once once I learned that that was a made up story, then I could suddenly say, well, what really happened was this. And I can have a new history, a new story. And so that emotion that I usually have when I'm confronted with a situation that I'm big and mean and nasty and I could cause harm to people no longer exists, you know, and I was freed from that, that myth that lived in my head. That's what's available to us when we're able to access the thoughts that precede the emotions. When we start taking, you know, stock of what our feelings are, then we're able to say, okay, so that feeling comes from this thought. What must be the thought that I'm having? You know, I'm in a situation, uh, you know, I go, I do trainings, for example, um, it's called Alice training. Um, and I train people on how to survive armed, um, you know, shooter incidents, just like the ones we just had a couple this week. Um, uh, and, and they're, they're horrifying to me, but I, you know, I, I don't have the money to fight the NRA. I don't have a political interest in being a member of Congress and trying to pass legislation, but I do know how to teach. And so I teach how to survive these incidents. In order to teach those classes, I have to go and look at all the statistics, all the deaths that have happened through guns, uh, through gun violence and mass shootings, um, in the United States. And it's just horrific information. And, and, um, it makes me sick to my stomach and I get upset. My upset, upset is one of those words that we use to, um, talk about massive emotions that have multiple parts to it. My upsetness is 
I'm angry at the people who do this. I'm frustrated that I can't stop it. Um, I am sad, deeply saddened um, for the families whose children are lost. Um, even when those children are adults, they were once somebody's child. Um, and so I'm, I'm sad for those families and their loss. Um, and I worry about my own family, my own children, my own adult children who are out there in the world um, because these events happen everywhere. So all those things are packed into my upset. And so once I look at those different feelings and unpack that, then I get to look at what's the thought before that. And the thought is, what if that happens to me? What if that happens to my daughters um, or my son? You know, how do I stop that? You know, do I feel helpless? I am, you know, I'm feeling helpless in, in that situation. What is it that I feel helpless? And what's that thought that is causing me to think that I am helpless in this? You know, and once I get a hold of those thoughts, then I can take action. What I can take action on is I can reprogram that. I can say, here's what I'm doing to stop it. This is what I'm doing to educate people. This is what I'm doing to make sure my family all knows what to do and how to stay, stay safe um, in an active shooter situation. I'm now in action because I've looked at what the feelings were and what the thoughts were that were causing those feelings. By taking action, I reduced that emotion. I reduce that that pain, that horror, that nausea, the you know the fears. Um, I reduce those because I've taken an action in response to the thoughts that were there beforehand. So learning how to feel is a process of of getting access to our emotions so that we can get access to the thoughts, so that we can then have greater control in our life. A lot of people fear getting access to their emotions because they think it'll make them more emotional. They'll become ruled by their emotions. Um, and just the opposite is true. What, what happens is you get access to the thoughts that can give you more control over your life and, and, and better able to react in those things. Now, let's talk about a couple um, scenarios about why I wrote um, Learning to Feel. The first and foremost is all of us, all of us today are beaten into submission by violence, terrorism, um, you know, the, the, what we're just talking about, the gun violence and things like that, by um, horrors, um, you know, things that we hear on the news. Um, it's just too tragic for most of us to handle. So our mind wants to block that out. Our, our, we, we want to we want to numb ourselves to it, and we either do that mentally or we do that through drugs and alcohol. We we numb out ourselves so that we don't have to feel that intensity. And so, a lot of us today are walking around, really, you know, either going la 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 with our hands over our ears, or or you know, actively trying to escape and not listen to the news and not look at it, um, not read the news columns. I don't want to see any of that anymore. It hurts too much to be alive um, and aware of those things. So one of the reasons I wrote learning to feel is so that we can, we can deal more effectively with the, the numbing that has, has taken over our, our being. As a second part of that, um, as a man, 
I and as a man who grew up in the 50s, you know, um, I was taught, taught, pardon me, the glottal stop there. (laughs) Um, That's an emotional reaction, by the way. Um, When you feel that glottal stop, when when you try to say something, that's your body not wanting to say it because it 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 feels it it you know it might have pain to it or something. As a man growing up in the fifties, I was taught not to feel. Big boys don't cry. Um, you know, you bury your feelings before you, you know, get on the football field because you don't want your feelings to get in the way of um, doing the right thing. You know, the, the play that you know that you know to, that you have to do. Um, you have to pull right, pull left, you know, um, you know, handle. Um, sorry, somebody's calling. You have to handle what's in front of you rather than feeling the, the panic or, or the fear. Um, and so, you know, we were taught not to, not to feel, you know, um, I had a coach once I, I dislocated my little finger. It was actually sticking out sideways like that and went over to the coach and he popped it back into place. And he says, ah, spit on it and rub it in the dirt. You'll be better before you're married. Um, and, and, you know, we weren't allowed to feel the pain of that. Um, just get back out on the field and do your job. Um, and so all of that kind of programming for men. Uh, a lot of men growing up um, learned that they weren't allowed to to feel. I think this newest generation that's that's you know now reaching adulthood, um, whatever level they are, A or Z or whatever, um, are you know the young men that I see are much more attuned to their feelings uh, than we were growing up. So I think this is much more of you know if, if we're talking about men's issues with with feelings. Um, much more uh, an older man, a middle age and above man's problem than it is a younger man's problem. However, we all are still beaten into submission and numbed out by um, the horrors and the things that we, you know are happening in our our government and our country and things like that. So um, it's it's important for us from those two perspectives to learn how to feel. So the book was actually written as a journey of my own to rediscover some of those things so that I could, you know, deal with the the masculine programming that I had growing up, as well as I could deal with, you know, what's going on today um, that would want me not to, to feel as well. Um, so the other thing I wanted to lay out in this initial um recording is the things that I'm not talking about when I'm talking about learning to feel. I am not talking about clinical depression. I'm not talking about manic depressive um, or any kind of clinical um, disorder, um, you know, as part of what I deal with. That's not uh, that's not the same territory. And, and, you know, those often are, are chemical or, you know, other disturbances that, that happen in the mind and body that are beyond my scope. Um, so, um, you know, we're not really trying to, to fix something that is a disorder. Um, I'm not trying to prescribe anything that, you know, you should do if, um, if you're in therapy or, or anything like that. Continue with that. I'm just really talking about normal everyday feelings that we, that we all have. It's not something to dig into that I want to dig into, um, very much, uh, at all. You know, there will be times, you know, there, there are times when we get into a funk. 
um, as normal people, you know, people who, and I'm not saying that people who have emotional problems are abnormal. What I'm saying is that in the everyday uh, existence of, of being a, a human, um, sometimes we get into a funk, you know, we just, we just, you know, we're down for some reason. Um, and what we get to do with that is we get to unpack it. Um, you know, when I wrote Learning to Feel, it's, it, it, it's a different kind of book than I've ever written before. Um, I typically write as a subject matter expert on things that I know about. So I write about transformation. I write about, uh, spirituality. I write about, um, the dark night of the soul or, or things like that. Um, because I, I've studied them and, you know, I, I know something about them. In learning to feel, I wrote a lot about myself and what I was going through in this journey of trying to recover my emotional being. Um, and, and so when I submitted the book, um, when, it, when the manuscript was finally complete and, um, and the book came back as, as what's called, um, an advanced review copy, which I still have, um, looks like this. It's a beautiful cover and everything. And it will be available in August. Um, but you get these copies to send out to the review companies, the people who critique your writing. Um, I sent out 10 copies that day. And the next day I woke up in a depression. I just, I felt scared. I felt, you know, oh my God, what have I done? You know, people are going to know my innards. They're going to know, you know, something about me that I've never shared publicly before. Um, and, and I, I, I just was in a funk. I, you know, there was no other way to describe it. In that situation, I actually knew what was happening. I figured it out after the first day and I said, Oh, this is what's happening. Um, I let myself be there for another day. Um, and then I started, you know, looking at what are the thoughts, you know, what am I really thinking, um, about, you know, what are, you know, am I afraid that they're going to critique my writing? Um, they're going to, they're going to say, you know, this buffoon, um, who wants to know about Chris Garrell's life anyway, you, um, you know, I had all those thoughts that were in there. And so I got to start looking at how to replace those thoughts. Um, and, you know, brought me out of the funk um, pretty quickly. So, you know, we do experience those times of ups and downs and, and, you know, it's important for us to allow the, the downs to happen because if we hammer those flat, what we do is we also flatten the, the highs, you know? So um, I also want to talk about, you know, great experiences, love and peace and joy and awe uh, tranquility, things like that, that we feel, um, you know, on a regular basis as well. And, you know, that we want to keep, do I want to analyze the thought behind my joy? <laughs> do I want to analyze the, the thoughts behind my loving? Yeah, maybe, you know, there might be some things that I can gain from that, that I can increase my joy, increase my loving, you know, when I feel love uh for something is someone which is an incredibly incredibly complex emotion it's it's a bundle of whole bunches of other kinds of things and we'll spend one whole session just on love um you know going forward but um 
you know, when when we experience that and we're able to to look at, well, what is it that I love about this person? What is it that um, that I delight in? Um, the the theologian James Loder has this delightful um, definition of love, which he calls the the unconditional delight in the particularities of another. You know, I just enjoy that so much. Uh, the unconditional delight in the particularities of another person. That's what I feel when I'm in love. I just delight in everything about her. Um, my wife, Sarah, is just, you know, the joy of my life. And and um, and all of her idiosyncrasies and all of her um, qualities, you know, good, bad, sideways, and others, I enjoy, I love, I delight in them. And and that to me is the definition of of what love is. So we'll get into love as we go along. But my goal here isn't to overanalyze those kinds of things, but rather to look at the ones that get in our way. When our emotions get in our way, what we need to do is really find out what's behind those emotions. So that's what this segment of Dream, Declare, Deliver is going to be all about. It's going to be all about learning to feel. And uh, it's going going to be a trip down several different emotional paths. Uh, we'll take on different emotions. I'm going to get a chance to interview some some really cool people uh, to to join me on this this quest, and you know get a chance to explore how to feel and what are the benefits of learning to feel. So thank you so much for joining me um, on on this initial opening session of learning to feel. Uh, part of the Dream, Declare, Deliver series. Um, I hope you join me each week uh, for another session um, and um, for some of the some of the interviews and, and stories we get to tell about um, our emotional baggage and our emotional trips that we that we go through um, throughout our lives. Thanks again, and hope to see you next time. Mm-hmm.